Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making this show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. If you are a parent who is very curious about how your child relates to things, his or her environment, stimuli, and think, my goodness, my child is a genius, then this is the episode for you because we are going to be speaking to an expert and learning more about neurodiversity and specifically giftedness. Matthew, Dr. Matt Zakreski, Saidi is a high-energy creative clinical psychologist who utilizes an eclectic approach to meet the specific needs of his neurodivergent clients. He is proud to serve the gifted community as a consultant, professor, author, and researcher. He has spoken over 300 times all around the world about supporting neurodivergent kids. Dr. Zakreski graduated from Widener University's Institute for Graduate Clinical Psychology in 2016, and he is the founder of the Neurodiversity Collective. Dr. Matt, welcome to That's Total Mom Sense. I am thrilled to be here. It never gets old to be a guest on a podcast you listen to. It's like, it's sort of surreal. Like, <laughs> like, oh man, I can't wait till the next episode drops. Oh wait, that's me. <laughs> that's wonderful. And, and I love that you say that because even though, you know, there's mom in the title, this is very much a parent centric show and being inclusive is one of the pillars. And so I'm glad that you get to shed light as a father and a highly acclaimed expert. So that's really, really wonderful. Tell us about what neurodivergence means. It's important to have a clarity of terms, right? So neurodiversity is all the brains, right? It's everybody's brains. And you can broadly sort them into two categories, neurotypical and neurodivergent, right? Most people, 68%, give or take, of humans are neurotypical. They have a typical brain. It's in within normal limits. Neurodivergent brains are things that are different in some way. And that could be inborn biologically, or that could be sort of, a, you know, something that happens to you as you live. You know, you could be neurotypical, right? And then have a traumatic brain injury, and then you are no longer neurotypical. Grounding all of this in brain science is vital because for a long, long time, we saw behaviors and the things that kids do as a reflection of personality parenting, making it a choice, right? And thus, it's the kid's problem. Now we understand more and more that these things flow from brain differences or legitimate quantifiable brain differences. The kid is still responsible for the choices they make, but where it's flowing from is a different place. That knowledge changes how we intervene and thus hopefully helps our, give our kids what they deserve. 
Yes, 100%. And so it's very much a spectrum. Can you tell us about, you know, what that spectrum looks like? There are many things that are in the neurodivergent family, right? ADHD, very common. Autism, very common. OCD, schizophrenia. Growing up as a gifted kid in New Jersey, I just always assumed I was very smart. And I knew smart comes from the brain, but it never really occurred to me that my intelligence had something to do with the fact that my brain was literally different. But the more we learn about giftedness, we, it's not just, oh, you are good at spelling tests. It's, oh, you got a 1600 on the SAT. It's legitimate brain differences that show up not only in the classroom, but more importantly, on the playground, at the office, with your partner, in the community, right? You are gifted all the time. Right. And those brain differences, if kids don't know about them or if their conversation stops with, oh, I guess I'm just really smart, then we are missing some of the fundamental aspects that can make this challenging. And the more people know, the better they can do. And can you actually tell us more about the science? Because you've written uh, many articles about this, but is it the size of the brain, the speed of the synapses? Like, what is it? in giftedness uh, specifically in the hardwiring? So I'm going to highlight three primary differences. The first is your frontoparietal integration area, which sounds very fancy, but if you're listening at home, take your right index finger, draw a line where your hairline is. So intelligence, as we've found it in the brain, it lives in this part of the brain, right? This frontoparietal integration area. That comes online a lot earlier in gifted kids, right? So the those synapses, those connections that you talked about are fueling greater development, more rapid development in that part of the brain. Whereas in neurotypical kids, that stuff is coming online a little bit later. In gifted kids, we see it as early as 18 months. That's actually where personality comes from as well. So if you were if you're listening to this, you're like thinking, like, oh, that could be my kid. He or she is running around the playground like a little senator. <laughs> right. And like, you know, like, like Evita, right. Like come to me, my children. That, that's yes. also personality. It's probably a brain difference. So this area where intelligence is second thing we want to talk about is the amygdala. The amygdala is the source of fight or flight emotions in our brain. And it is usually in neurotypical kids. It's the size of your thumbnail. So go ahead and take a look at your thumbnail. Try and ignore your, like your French tip or your manicure, whatever you got going on there. Just the actual OG nail. But in gifted kids, it can be up to twice as big. So if you look at your both thumbs next to each other, I mean, we're taking mm. a small thing, but we're doubling it, right? right. So that is a, another thing. And then last but not least, the gifted brain has a lot more neural connections, right? So if you see it, it's not just local roads in the gifted brain. It's all superhighways. Information flies through the brain faster. There are more connections. So there are more interchanges. It's picking up stuff as it goes. So we have a brain that is super powered, right? And it's got a lot of big feelings and it comes online faster. And then it runs into this prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain, which is where your executive functioning is. And you could conceptualize that part of your brain as the brake system. So the gifted brain is a 2024 Ferrari Testarossa and your prefrontal cortex is the brake system on a 1988 Dodge Dart. <laughs> Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's a mismatch of systems. That's why you've got a kid in class where the teacher's like, what's the capital of New Jersey? And before they're even done saying New Jersey, the gifted kid is 
sprinting out of their chair. It's Durandon. Right. Okay, Tommy. Like it's taking <laughs> several notches, but all of these things are manifestation of brain differences. You know, when did you first discover and your parents that you were gifted? A lot of kids get identified in second grade. The American education system has a lot of redundancy built in. So we mm-hmm. see a lot of kids get identified in second grade because second grade in many ways is a redo of first grade, right? It, it, it adds more, but not a lot. So you start to see kids get bored in class. You start to see kids move through things quickly. That's what happened to me. They sent us home with a math workbook. We were supposed to do pages one through four. I finished the dang thing. And I brought it back into school on Monday and I gave it to them. And I said, what's this? And I said, well, I finished the book. And they sent me to the principal's office because they were convinced I had cheated. And this was before Google. So it's right. not like I could have even looked up the answers, right? So then my parents said, huh, he's probably gifted. That makes sense. So we did the IQ test, got a 144 IQ. And they sent me back to class and they just gave me another math workbook, right? I mean, like nothing changed. And even as an eight-year-old, a very precocious eight-year-old, but an eight-year-old nonetheless, I remember going home and saying to my mom, like, that's not right. Like, I showed you I could do the thing. Why are you giving me more of the thing, right? Let me do the next thing, the harder thing, the more interesting thing. My professional life, my professional journey started in that second grade classroom in Fairhaven, New Jersey in what, 1991, maybe? Can you tell us about how we can identify it early on? Because you said even a toddler can manipulate things differently. And so when can a parent decide, okay, we're going to do an IQ test at this age to find out where my kid stands? I mean, the IQ test is a big part of what psychologists do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. IQ testing is is a big part of our profession. And for young kids, ages two to six, there's a test called the WIPSI. And the WIPSI is for, I just did one just this week with a profoundly gifted four-year-old. And what we're seeing is those sort of standard reports, even leaving the academics aside for a moment, right? Because if you're a parent, you're probably sitting there going, my kid is reading, my kid is stacking blocks, my kid can color more or less within the lines. Those are things that like, okay, clearly this is an intelligent human. Mm -hmm. A lot of the psychosocial or social emotional things that are marked by giftedness are actually why kids get referred. So is your kid somebody who has a lot of sensory needs? Are they hypersensitive to things and hyposensitive to other things? Is your kiddo weirdly uncoordinated? Like not so much in like, I can't walk away, but like catching a ball or using a fork. One of the things we know about the gifted brain is that BFIT area, when it comes online earlier, fine motor skills tend to lag as a result. So mm. all kids who can do multivariate calculus, but can't catch a softball mm. right? because it's a different system of the brain, right? And like right. The, you had borrowed from Peter to pay Paul. Also, gifted kids develop what we call asynchronously. So a neurotypical kid, if they're 10, they're basically 10 emotionally, socially, physically, academically, intellectually. A gifted or other neurodivergent kiddo is going to develop out of sync. So they might be chronologically 10, but intellectually 15, emotionally 8, socially 9, intellectually 17, and physically 10. How do you intervene with that kid? And since gifted kids are craving those social interactions with brain peers, not age peers, if your kiddo likes to talk to grownups 
if your kiddo is like hanging on to the teacher's pants at recess or has made really good friends with the crossing guard, those are other markers where we're like, huh, maybe that's what this is because they're craving some sort of interaction that moves beyond Paw Patrol into, well, what do you think about yes. the political climate? Right. <laughs> right, right. Rather than like, you know, what color is the sun? Yellow. Yeah, um, that that's that's really incredible. I, I love that you touched on all the different facets to how their brain works and how they relate to the world. But if we were to like map out, you know, a uh, checklist for parents and, and they see that their child is that, where do you go get an IQ test done? It depends, of course, on how old your kid is. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're going to start older and move backwards. So if you go to public school, then the money you pay into with your taxes that pays for public school allows you to request that the district tests your kid. Okay. And so most districts have a child study team. It's a group of professionals that say, okay, you know, we we got a report to look at Tommy. What info do we have on Tommy? You know, and then if they decide to move forward, then they would refer him to their in-house school psychologist. The school psychologist then would do an IQ and or achievement test. So that's the school psychologist's job. So whether you are in Princeton, New Jersey, or Portland, Oregon, or wherever else our wonderful listeners are coming to us from, your public school will have a school psychologist. Now, this is where we put that caveat in there because school psychologists are responsible for the entire district. And oftentimes they are getting referrals for kids who are significant behavior challenges, kids who have learning delays rather than just differences. You know, and you'll hear this from a lot of districts. It's like, your kid's got straight A's. Your kid is doing fine. Why would we test your kid? Now, they have a legal obligation to consider your request, right? They can't just say, nope, you got straight A's. I won't even talk to you. But a lot of times districts will say, like, we got, it's a triage, right? We got a lot of other priorities right now. You know, my husband and I were talking about this. A lot of programs in our home state of New Jersey, like Governor School, have been defunded yeah. because, you know, the education system feels like there's no need to put money behind kids that are already ahead of the curve. And they're just kind of like, let's focus on those who need more attention. And so in that effect, you know, as a parent, it's important to advocate for your child either way because you know they're in a setting where they feel they're not being seen or heard and so it's it's up to the parents to say no I, I you know I, I want to create some sort of testing and then curriculum that caters to my child's needs and parents are often the people who drive the buses there and this is where it's completely appropriate to reach out to somebody like me a professional who can go to a meeting with you and and answer questions and tell you about the science. Also, the vast majority of states have a gifted child organization. And, you know, New Jersey, we have a very strong one. You know, most states have them. Some of them are in various states of development. But don't go it alone. Gather your super friends. Because I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast and you're a parent, you're probably doing it in fits and starts, driving between soccer practices and ballet and school. And you've got to drop the dry cleaning off. And oh, my gosh, I've got to get to the office. It's hard to find the time to do any of these things, right? right? So do yourself a favor and gather more resources, gather more people, because ultimately that's going to be what drives this forward in a productive way. One one thing to mention there for for New Jersey, um, 
There's the Gifted Child Society. I just want to plug them and their director, Darcy Natali. She's phenomenal and she really helps parents through just generations from age four, well through college, navigate which school to consider or which programs. And the Gifted Child Society does workshops and summer camps and that sort of thing throughout the year so that kids, you know, feel challenged and are exposed to that sort of learning, which is excellent. And they do administer IQ tests as well. And so I think that's important to note as well, like find out what that society is in your state and see if they can do an IQ test to start. For sure. You know, and, you know, also here in New Jersey, the New Jersey Association for Gifted Children, Mm -hmm. you know, they're out on the forefront with legislation. They're in schools. We have an annual conference every year. I may or may not be keynoting it in March. So if you happen to find yourself in New Jersey in March uh, and you want to come see me talk to a room full of people, I trust you, you will not be bored. Uh, Amazing. So, but yeah, I mean, it's you can't go it alone. You know, when I talk to everybody, it's like, wow, I didn't sign up to be an advocate, but oh my gosh, I've got to be an advocate. Like I've got to know the law. I've got to know best practice. Like I couldn't teach a fourth grade classroom, right? I, if you put me in there, I would scream. But I have to know to do my job, pedagogy and standards and praxis. It's just, I have to be able to speak that language or I cannot be the most effective advocate I can be. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. No. So if your school says, listen, we're not just going to, we can't get to it. We're so sorry. Or no, we just won't do it. That's when you would go private. So you go to the gift child society or you find a clinical psychologist like myself and then you get a private IQ test done. Now, those are more expensive, right? The nice thing about going to the district is it's free. You've already paid. Mm-hmm. I probably cost myself thousands of dollars of business over the years because I always tell parents, go to your school district first. Oh. I do good work, but I'm not cheap, right? I mean, right. it's like, I got to pay my bills. I got to keep my lights on. One of those- what, is, what are the rates so that we you know, are aware? You know, you could go to Rutgers. Rutgers has the psychology clinic that they run for gra- that grad students staff it. You can get an IQ test on there for pretty cheap. Or you go to Dr. So-and-so from greater Princeton, let's say, who is a classically trained neuropsychologist, and they're going to charge you 10 grand. There's a broad spectrum, and it is totally appropriate if you're a parent who's thinking about doing private testing to call around and ask for rates. Like That is appropriate. It's good practice, right? If you were in a car, you wouldn't be like, well, I, I I went to the Mazda dealership here in town and they told me it's this much. I guess I just won't ask any more questions, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Right? You, know, you owe it to yourself and your kid to ask around. And I think 999 times out of a thousand, a private testing is going to be worth the money, right? Yeah. I obviously have a bit of a bias on that because that pays my bills. Right, uh, right. No, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's something that we should be aware of, especially if you're testing the younger kids. And they're not in a skill, school system as yet. Yet, would you say it's like how much roughly per hour so that the audience knows? It is reasonable to assume somewhere between $500 and $1,000 per hour. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you figure like a two to three hour process is going to run you somewhere between two and $3,000. Right. Yep. Yeah. And again, well worth it if it's something that's going to set you on a course for your child. What about Mensa? What's the difference? So Mensa really sort of serves the adults, right? Okay. I mean, 
you know, a lot of the gifted programming, because all of our our marching orders come from the Javits grant, the federal Javits grant, which basically mandates that every state needs to have some version of gifted education. Okay. So the National Association for Gifted Children, you know, essentially they're the mothership, right? And they've dispatched all of us to our different states. And we, you know, we do our boots on the ground stuff and then report back to the powers that be in Washington. But our purview is really only through K through 12. You're seeing more gifted stuff occurring in colleges, but it's, you know, I mean, for many professionals, it's like, I got you to college. There are many gifted people there. Find your people. Good luck. Right. right? So Mensa sort of picks up the baton as an organization and serves gifted adults, a gifted adults who maybe didn't get the proper gifted education or are underemployed or underwhelmed. You know, not all of us can be Fields Medal winning mathematicians. So and I've been to a handful of Mensa meetings over the years. It's an advocacy group. It's a resource center, but it's also in many ways a support group. It's like, hey, there are not too many people on planet Earth whose brains work like our brains. I'm glad we are all in a room where our brains can bounce off each other like that. And there's something powerful about being around like-minded people. You know, what I've found is that it's not how much they know, you know, it's not like, oh, my three-year-old is reading chapter books. It's like, you don't have to think that it's so unattainable like that. It's essentially measuring the horsepower of the brain. And in the test, um, you know, a psychologist will take them through almost like brain teasers and puzzles and things like that and see how fast they can solve them. And when you look at percentiles, essentially, if, if a child is in the 99th percentile for that age, age four, age five, whatever it may be, that means that they solved that faster than, you know, 98 percent of the kids at that exact age. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. If you can kind of speak to what some of those exercises are that you take them through and then what is considered gifted as far as IQ level. So we've decided that intelligence is five things and it's verbal comprehension. So what you know and can understand problem solving, nonverbal reasoning, memory, and processing speed. Those five things with their powers combined, right, make IQ. IQ is inherently a flawed measure, right? It's not like we can just snap a picture of your brain like, oh, this is how smart you are. We've decided these five things make up intelligence. And I'll tell you this, a lot of times gifted kids do great in verbal reasoning, nonverbal reasoning, and problem solving and fall off a cliff in terms of memory and processing speed. Mm. Cliff, my in this case might be you are profoundly exceptionally gifted in verbal reasoning, nonverbal reasoning, problem solving, and just average in working memory and processing speed. But the difference between the hot top of the mountain and ground floor is still a big difference. Yes. Kids are like, why can't I process this stuff at the insanely fast rate that I can do everything else at? And then they bog down, and they get frustrated. The scores that pop out. I often see them as sort of a ski slope, right? We start up really high and then we just sort of slowly go downhill. And that is not atypical just because of how the gifted brain works, right? I mean, it's very fast until it isn't, right? You know, if you've seen all the Fast and the Furious movies, right? You know how like Vin Diesel's car has like 97 gears that he can just keep downshifting. Yeah. Like the gifted brain doesn't have a second gear. I either got it or what? What do I do now, right? Like I don't have another 
move and you have to teach them that you have to teach them okay cool you didn't get it instantly but now what do you do right mm-hmm. like let's talk about how to problem solve let's talk about how to be resilient and that can be sort of a foreign concept to a lot of bright kids because they're not building those same skills the way neurotypical kids are neurotypical kids get the gift of grind right mm-hmm. they have to work harder they have to study they have to ask questions Many gifted kids skate on through right till the end of middle school into high school without really having to break a sweat. Yeah. But this is why gifted education is so important because then you get kids who sophomore year of high school get the first time they've never been able to do a test and panic because they don't know what he, what is studying. I, right. People talk about it all the time, right? Like, what does that right. even mean? And, you know, if you're the smart kid, if everyone says your name and genius or Harvard or or Mensa or whatever those things are, failing a test is not just a poor grade. It is a reflection on your lack of worth as a human. That's when somebody like me comes in because that's like a, a catastrophic wound to the ego, right? And I help people remind themselves like, while we are our brains, we are far more than our IQ. So that gifted level of IQ starts at 130. It's two standard deviations away from average, which is 100, but it keeps going ad non infinitum. You know. You know, so we get highly gifted at 145, profoundly gifted at 160, exceptionally gifted at 175. I tested a kid once who had a 193 IQ. That kid is as different from neurotypical kids as a gifted kid is from a profoundly gifted kid. Like this is just like, this kid's a unicorn. And I explained that to him and he goes, interesting, interesting. (laughs) I'm like, do you have any questions? He goes like, well, now what? Right. I mean, like just very like, what do, what do we do? What do we do? That's where you start getting to these hyper-specialized schools, programs, societies that serve those kids because that kid, I mean, just a remarkable young man. Right. But I mean, I, I said like, we, we are going to have to really change your entire life because you aren't going to do third grade, third grade for you. You probably got that done when you were three. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like how, where, like, where is the fastest you can run and the highest you can jump and put you in those places? I guess to bring it back to those who are listening who have gifted kids and now need to learn the practical strategies to answer the now what question. Let's, let's get into that. And we can start with the fact that they have a very know-it-all attitude. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. I don't need help with this. I know what I'm doing. No, nope, you're, you know, you're gonna spill the milk carton all over, or you're, all you're over. yeah, yep. you're gonna, <laughs> you, you don't know. Or they uh, are such perfectionists inherently. I messed up on this word, and you know, it's slanted. And I have to just rip up the whole paper and start again, or I didn't color in the lines properly or whatever it may be. And then it becomes even bigger challenges as kids uh, get older, but to be so one track with like, this needs to be perfect. That's so unattainable. How as parents, can we guide them through those meltdowns? The first thing we understand that perfectionism is an outshoot of anxiety because it's all about control. Like, hey, if it's perfect, I don't need to worry about it. It's done. It's perfect. It's great. Wonderful. Let's move on with our lives, right? Right. And since that is unsustainable, and and this is where being gifted is tricky because gifted kids make it more possible more often. 
right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you can get the hundred on the test. You know, you can paint the perfect picture. You can sing the perfect aria more often than other people can do. So your brain starts to say, well, if perfection is attainable for me, why wouldn't I reach for that every time? And that's, what the, so I love your word unsustainable. Cause like, yeah, you can do it. But imagine if you drove your car at the top end speed of your car all the time, you know, you would hey, get several tickets, but also your car would explode. I'm not a car guy. I can't fix it for you. Uh, <laughs> what's often helpful here is the idea of top down versus bottom up thinking. So top down thinking assumes perfection, right? You look down from the top. It is where it's supposed to be. Great. I have no further questions. I'll move on. If you're doing top-down thinking, the first thing you see is the thing that's wrong, right? So if you get a 97 on a test, top-down thinking is, I was supposed to get 100, I got one problem wrong, right? That's the first thing your brain says. And it's sort of that negativity, like downward spiral from there. Bottom-up thinking is somehow by hook or by crook, I knew 97% of the material on this. That is freaking amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. You know? Um, That like... One of my best friends growing up, a profoundly gifted human, he's killing it out in uh, Silicon Valley right now. He walked out of the SAT saying, oh, I got one problem wrong. And I was like, oh, you mean like there was a section you do so? Well? He's like, no, no, I got one problem wrong. Now think about oh, it. This kid got a 1600 on the SAT, got a full ride to Stanford. Yeah. Right? Wow. But the first thing his brain says, you got one wrong, buddy. There's a speck of paint out of place on the Mona Lisa. How dare you? Right, like, right. But this is when you, you know, a lot of people describe me as sort of aggressively pragmatic because mm-hmm. like, listen, I, it's just got to work. Like, so that's when we get into bottom up thinking. The default is do nothing. The default is I didn't do anything. I didn't try. I didn't attempt it. So anything you do through that mindset is value added. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you wanted to go to the gym today is, you know, his parents like, we're always like, I got to get to the gym. You never get to the gym. There's always stuff that gets in the way. So instead of going to the gym, you did 20 minutes of planking after the kids went to bed. Bottom-up thinking says you did something. You added value. Yeah. So if you said to your kiddo, I know you wanted to draw a perfect picture of a shark, and I know the shark is not as good as you wanted it to be, but it isn't the shark is either good or bad. It's not binary thinking. It's there could have been no shark or whatever shark you added. Right. Yes, and you yes. can talk about how to make that shark better. Right. So better is a journey. Best is a destination. We don't we want mm. to do best and throw it out of our kids vocabulary because it's not it's not helpful. Better. We can always try and do better. Right. And that's a very cool thing because, you know, parenting is a journey and always get trying to get better. Right. right. You know, perfect parents, no matter what they say on Instagram or Pinterest. I'm speaking directly to you, audience. Yes. Social media will break your brain on that. One of my good friends from high school is now a reporter for the New York Times. And she interviewed me for an article about parenting in there. And that's what I was saying. It's like our circles of social comparison for parenting have gone from the people we were in the hospital with to our town to planet Earth. It's like, oh, this mom in Canberra, Australia is doing all these things I'm not doing. Yes. Oh my God. So true. It's so (laughs) macro and it's overwhelming. So overwhelming. Right. And it's just like, we got to put it down. We've got to say like bottom up thinking, like my children are fed. They are relatively clean. They are relatively healthy. I'm doing an okay job. Anything else I do today is value added. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think it's important that we 
teach our kids, and you have an article on this, how failure is fundamental. And I wanted to just bring up, there was an article and it's called Broke Scholar. It lists the highest suicide rates around the country. Number one is MIT, two is UPenn, followed by Harvard and NYU and so on. I mean, I remember I I went to BU for, for undergrad and I remember I had read about articles of of um, students who had just plummeted to their death on Memorial Drive at, at MIT. And I thought, my goodness, I mean, this is the creme de la creme of our nation. You know, these, these thinkers, these change makers in the works and what could be going inside, going on inside their head that they just are like, I'm, I, I, I'm done. I give up. I often say that suicide and suicidology is the specialty I wish I didn't have. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of work in that space. And obviously, mental health is a complex thing, right? I mean, I w- my job is not easy for that reason. Let's boil that phenomenon down to two things. Thing one is the vital importance of gifted education. Mm-hmm. Because if you, what we talked about before, kids who never learn to struggle, they never learn to grit. They never learn to ask for help. If those kids sail through, and this is what we see from kids from like smaller towns, it's like, you are the smartest kid in school. Everybody treated you like you're made of glass. You go to Harvard or Stanford or MIT. And then for the first time in your life, you're really challenged. Yeah. You don't have the skills to ask for help, to go to a tutoring session, right? To email the professor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you fall behind the eight ball because you're not just taking one class at MIT. You're taking five classes at MIT and maybe you're struggling in all of them. Yes. It's amazing how quick one can get underwater. In the movie Moana, when she tries to leave the island first and then, you know, her boat gets swamped by the waves. She's trying to struggle to the surface and the waves just keep coming. They keep knocking her back. And that's what struggle is in school, right? Because it's like, it's not going to stop. You've got to get a life raft. You've got to get some help, right? Otherwise, the system doesn't care. Yeah. It's just going to keep coming. Exactly. So we've got to get kids meaningful challenge earlier so they develop those skills of grit, resilience, asking for help. Because one of the things we know about gifted education is that it isn't just about what they know. It's about the social emotional. It's right. about teaching them social skills and emo- you know and helping them to connect to others and teaching them about their feelings and positive coping strategies right so there's all that stuff right that's vital we've got to push that stuff in right which is why gifted schools and gifted summer camps are vital so you've got to do that stuff the second side of this and this is more of a a broader parenting question but we know that we get all these parents, right, who who think it's a badge of honor, it's a reflection on their skills as a parent to get their kid into pen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you hire the tutors and you hire the coaches and you hire the essay writers. And so your kid who probably should have gone to TCNJ or Villanova or or Lehigh, which are all great schools, yeah, up at Penn. But the problem is, is that without the infrastructure you have created for them, they can't swim in that pool and things get really bad really quickly. A young student I worked with at another elite school in the greater Philadelphia area, I shall not name it, 
we had a very frank conversation. I was like, I think your parents overinflated you. And because you're overinflated, you could grab a really high rung on the ladder. But now that the waters have receded, you're way too high. It's not a failure to not belong somewhere. Exactly. So this kid, we referred them to one of the Penn, Penn State satellite campuses. Mm-hmm. Six months later, he didn't need me anymore. Right? Oh, wow. He's like, that's like, this is, these are my people. I'm like, yes, these are your people. Yeah. Fine that they are your people. Right. I mean, yes. it's, it's really one of those things. Like, so the parents out there, like it is not the best school. It is the best fit school. Yes. Right. So like, please hear me when I say that, like when I finished high school, I got into Dartmouth, the university of Virginia, Villanova, Holy Cross, Boston college. So we would have been rivals. Uh, yeah, we would have been fighting for the bean pot, you and I. Yeah, uh, I love it. <laughs> uh, University of Richmond and Wake Forest, which is where I ended up going. And people in my very competitive small town were like, but Dartmouth and UVA are ranked higher than the Wake yeah. Forest. Like, yeah. Super. Right. I mean, it's like that, but that's where I wanted to go. That's where I felt most comfortable. And you can do a lot of things to cram your kid into Harvard, but ask ask yourself this question. Do you want to be the least smart person at Harvard, or do you want to be in the top 10% at let's pick a different school, Fairfield? Right. 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 Mm -hmm. It's a great school, right? It's right near New York city. It's got clam jam. If you, if, if you're a Fairfield alum, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's the sort of thing, like we have to, as parents push our kids to do well, but we don't want to push our kids to do more than they're capable of. Right. Because that's when we create this false bottom and they get to school and they fall through it. I, you know, one of my favorite things when I give this talk to parents is over the last 10 years, Harvard University has produced eight Fulbright scholars. That's amazing, right? Wow, go Harvard. Do you know how many Fulbright scholars uh, Kennesaw State College in Georgia has produced? Seven. So, wow. You got anybody wow. out there who are killing themselves to get their kids into Kennesaw State College in Georgia? Right. <laughs> And and if you're and listen, if you're a Kennesaw State alum, you guys are doing awesome. Like that's, yeah. that's the thing, right? It's just like it, it increasingly it isn't where you go; it's what you do. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. And then, how do we, you know, make sure that our kids are challenged in the middle school, high school education system that we have, without having to skip a grade or, or it, yes, that's an option, but then, you know, they're going to be socially stunted if they're years younger. So how do we, you know, work around that where they still have peers and feel like they can be social, but they're, you know, getting what they need because I mean, I've seen 14 year olds having to go to community college and it's just, I feel sad that they have to do that, you know, because they're never going to really relate to uh, their fellow students we go back to this idea of asynchrony, yeah. right? So if your kid, you know, my, my mentor, Gene Peterson always used to say every gifted kid is five kids. And that's really asynchrony made flesh, right? It's like, Oh, I'm this kid academically. I'm this kid socially. I'm this kid intellectually. I'm this kid emotionally. So if you are feeding your kids academics by having them be a 14 year old in community college, that is what you have to do to get those academics met. But remember that there are other domains of whom this mm. is. Right. So you're a 14 year old in community college, but maybe you're in your age group for Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. Right. That's Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're playing community based pickup hockey because you don't have the coordination to play on the travel team, but you like hockey. So you're doing that. 
right? And maybe you're doing therapy for the for the emotional stuff, and maybe you're in a social skills group, or maybe you're chasing your interest in playing high-level chess at the library on Tuesday afternoons. As parents, we have to see our kids as multimodal because they exist in a multimodal world. Uh-huh. It isn't just, oh, this is who you are, right? It's these are all the things that make you you. So we intervene in as many places as possible because chasing a kid's interests and establishing that commonality is always going to work to scratch those itches regardless of where they are. I remember in a meeting you um, had mentioned as parents, as much as we want to help our kids with every little thing, it's more important to be a lighthouse. So can you just kind of speak to that analogy? Because it really resonated. So I grew up, you know, because I grew up on the Jersey Shore. I grew up as a life, you know, I was a lifeguard. And Mm -hmm. the number one thing that they tell, the first thing they teach you to do is if someone is struggling, you bring something for them to grab onto in the water. Because if you jump in, they're going to grab you. That's what humans Ah, do. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you give them the surfboard, you give them the floaty, you give them the life preserver, right? That's going to take the the burden of trying to stay above water off of them, and then we get them back to shore. So as parents, our instinct is to leap into the water and save our kids. That means now I got to save two people. I if I had a nickel for every time I talk to a mom who is sitting in the school's parking lot having a panic attack on state testing day, I'd be like, well, this is his future. I'm like, it isn't. Like. Like no kid has not gotten into Princeton because of how they did on the seventh grade PSSAs. I promise you as an educational and psychological professional, it doesn't work that way. Yes. Yeah. No, we have to care, but we got to put a limit on how much we care. And that's why when we feel the need to leap into the water to save our kids, that's why it's helpful to be the lighthouse. Lighthouses are steady. They are a beacon that regardless of the level of danger, they're always there. Right, mm. give our kids something to point towards and swim towards and get that help. And that's how we that's how we meet their needs, right? It's really it's about leaning into that stuff. So be the lighthouse and say, like, hey, I know this is hard right now. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Keep swimming to me. You can keep yeah. asking me questions. You can keep, you can always come to me for help. And when we do that stuff, that's how people end up doing better. Ah, brilliant. And now if you can share a dad sense moment with us, <laughs> you know, this uh, segment of the show. So yeah, tell, tell us when you trusted that intuition and I'm sure it's every day, but sometimes it really, really works out in your favor. So there's, there's two parts of this. Do you mind if I share two? Yes. Oh my gosh. Of course, please. When, you know, I took my kids to the local park. There was a kiddo who fell off, you know, fell off the slide and they didn't fall far. Right. But, you know, they were clearly hurt. And it was the sort of thing that I like, I like instinctively I scooped down. I was like, Hey, are you okay? Like keeping a distance. I don't know this child. Right. Mm-hmm. And realizing in this moment that, that this kid was terrified, not because of me, but because they had fallen and the parent was, was not nowhere to be seen. Right. Okay. So, so I scooped up this kid out. Right. And I'm like, hey, listen, I'm going to keep you safe. My name is Matt. What's your name? <laughs> right. And I was like, I got you, buddy. And like, so we're looking around, I'm trying to find a parent that looks like they're Sans child. And then I look over and there's there's a mom who is trying to change, you know, the younger kid's dirty diaper, right? It was right. definitely 
classic old school blowout, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh. So I walk over. I'm like, hi, ma'am. And sorry, is this your kiddo? And she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she was like, you must think I'm a terrible parent. And and I remember thinking to myself, like, as like she has a screaming poop covered baby and a screaming skinned knee kiddo, I'm like, no, this is impossibly difficult, right? Like these things happen to happen at the same time. I do not judge you for this. And it's so like, you know, so I'm like, listen, which kid would you rather have right now? Would you rather have the poopy kid or the bleeding kid? She goes, the bleeding kid. So I changed this kid's diaper, right? And like, listen, I'm not, this is not a humble brag. I am not a superhero parent. I'm a parent who gets it, yes. right? How many times have other parents stepped in and helped me out? How many times mm -hmm. have an extra server come over to a restaurant and give my kids some crayons? Like we cannot be, our instincts to offer help are great, but the instincts to receive help and this is when I'm speaking directly to the men, right? To my dads out there, your instinct is not to be able to receive help, to say, no, I got this. I can handle it on my own. And I'm going to say this as gently as I can. You're wrong. Yeah. Right. None of us can do this alone. Right. And it's so leaning on a partner or partners, leaning on family, not being afraid to call a babysitter, not being afraid to call another dad who is also overwhelmed and say, let's be overwhelmed together. Let's okay. make an amantivity. Right. Like that's like, that's what we do. And those things are so vital because, and this is sort of segueing to the second point. There's a lot of stuff out there for moms There are mom groups, parenting groups, stuff like that. There's not a lot of stuff out there for dads. So dads like don't wait to be an assistant coach on your kid's little league team in three years to find male company. There's no reason you can't go to the parenting class. There's no reason you can't go to the library. Like if you involve yourself in these in this world, you will meet other parents of all genders, right, who are dealing with this stuff. So, you know, I feel like dads often feel like they need permission to do something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So as a dad and a mental health professional and a common podcast guest, I will I'm hereby giving you permission. Find your people, your supports, because you deserve it. And you're going to find that not only you're a better parent, but you're a better person. That's so, so useful and helpful. And thank you. I'm glad that my audience gets to hear you say that. Um, all parents listening in. Is there a quote that you live by? My favorite quote is, good is the enemy of great, but great is the enemy of done. And like I said, aggressively pragmatic. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, because I have, I'm a recovering perfectionist, right? And like I could fiddle with things until they're, until they're perfect, but then I don't get anything else done. So yeah. good can be the enemy of great. That's true. But great is often the enemy of done. And since we are all overworked and overwhelmed, giving ourselves permission to be done is pretty important. Yes, 100%. And um, where can my listeners follow you and learn more about uh, the Neurodiversity Collective and getting involved? I'm all over the social media. We have a really lovely Facebook group, facebook.com slash Dr. Matt Sikreski. It's giftedness and nerdy humor and parenting advice and mental health stuff. Our practices website is the neurodiversitycollective.com. That's a mouthful. So just punch my name into Google and it'll come right up. I did on a lot of podcasts. So if this was interesting, if you put my name into Spotify or wherever you find your podcast, you'll see more more of me. I don't know why you want to listen to more. It's but they, but it's out there. I promise. Yes. Uh, no, they'll want to. <laughs> our paths crossed right when I gave a talk to a you know a gifted school. 
And I think that's that's the part of my job I like the most. I love getting to go to a school or a community. And like that's why I travel all over the country and sometimes all over the world. I mean, next week I'm going to Minnesota. The week after that, I'm going to Reno, Nevada. The week after that, down to Philadelphia. Like I love going places because that's where you can make the biggest impact. You know, I have a, you know, I have a mission to help as many neurodivergent kids and many parents of neurodivergent kids as I can. So if this is interesting, you think I could help your community, your school, shoot me an email and we'll set something up. And I love to come out and be able to do that for you. Thank you, Dr. Matt. I'm going to be sure to uh, link all of your press articles that you've written or have been featured in and your website and where all they can, they can reach you. I appreciate you. And I'm so glad that you're a lighthouse in our life and so many people we know. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, this was a treat and I had a, I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Matt Zakreski. To learn more about him, you can log on to the neurodiversitycollective.com. Thank you, Dr. Matt, for your time and your wisdom. I think it's such a nuanced topic and so many parents are going to have felt seen and heard through our conversation today. I also recommend following a dear friend, Debbie Reber. She has a community called Tilt Parenting, and it is dedicated to differently wired children. So if that interests you, I highly recommend you join her community and listen to her podcast called Tilt Parenting. To find out more about my episodes and YouTube shorts and videos and all the promos that go along with it, you can log on to my website, that's totalmomsense.com. You can find the show wherever you listen and on YouTube, just type in that's totalmomsense. You can email me at that'sotalmomsense at gmail.com. I love reading your letters and write back to everyone. Remember, always Trust your mom's sense and dad's sense. Stay strong, super parents. I will see you soon. That's total mom sense.